Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. Welcome to part two of Shear Law Group's series on the future of money and the beginning of the end of your privacy rights. Today our entire episode is the interview I conducted with Dr. Philippa Malgram on September 22, 2021. Pippa, as she's generally called, is a noted economist, author, and a former advisor to President George Bush. If you want to learn about one of the most transformative technologies in our history that will replace money as you know it over the next one to three years, if you want to know about how this new technology represents one of the greatest threats and assaults on your privacy rights ever undertaken, and how you can stop it. And if you want to know about other new transformative and disruptive technologies that will change the economic and investment landscape forever, then stay tuned. I'm confident that you'll find this to be one of the best interviews you've heard all year. Human knowledge now doubles every 12 hours, and your cell phone and computer are pumping out personal and confidential information about you in ways you never imagined. Generally, technological innovation is far ahead of government's ability to control it. But now, with the growing unholy alliance of sovereign nations and big tech, they'll use your cell phone and computer and newly emerging laws to control everything you do, unless you demand that it stop. We need to become aware of what's happening, and to resist a future of dominance and control of our lives, so that the tech's a boon and a blessing to us, not a curse. Listen now for part two of The Future of Money and the Beginning of the End of Your Privacy Rights. Let me tell my listeners a little bit about you, and then I'll ask you some questions, and here we go. Cool. Dr. Philippa Malcolm, you've attained a Ph.D. from the London School of Economics. You're an economist and a technology entrepreneur and an author. You've served as special assistant to President George W. Bush on the White House National Economic Council. You've authored numerous books, including The Leadership Lab, which won a Business Book of the Year Award in 2019. You're best known as Pippa. I'm going to call you Pip unless you tell me not to, so welcome to Truth Serum, Pip Malcolm. Thank you so much. You wrote a book in 2015 called Signals, and uh, it's, the title is How Everyday Science Can Help Us Navigate the World's Turbulent Economy. And one theme I got out of it is you basically juxtaposed uh, dictatorial economies that tax their, their, uh, their subjects into submission versus the Western economies where... You know, the taxing is unpopular, but they do it indirectly through quantitative easing, which is really just an indirect tax. So you wrote that book back in 2016. How much worse is the problem now, and in your opinion, what's the likely result of massive worldwide QE? Yeah, oh gosh, that's a big question. Well, yeah, I predicted it, and it's intensified, and it's not going away. I, I don't think the central bankers are going to take it away. Um, and it has changed the landscape of the world economy. I mean, 
arguably every single thing is in a bubble these days. And uh, it's actually, I think, helped create this new financial uh, technology around blockchain and crypto. And even governments are now thinking about, if not actively creating sovereign digital money, which is ironic, they themselves are moving away from their own fiat currency into new structures of finance. So it, it persists. The problem is, how do you get out of it? And the answer is, nobody knows how you get out of it. That, let me ask, that's an interesting point, because I remember even a little bit of background, I, I heard you on uh, Macro Voices, you were using the uh, stories of tally sticks, remember that? And, totally. and how they were, their seminal changes in how finance works. Uh, you want to give the tally stick story? Because I'm wondering if you think this is another seminal transition. I do. So this is the thing. When we think about money, we think of it as this sort of permanent, universal thing. But actually, it's just another technology. And technologies radically change over time. And so for a thousand years, the British used a technology called tally sticks, which were literally a wooden board that was cracked in half super unevenly. So the two sides would definitely match. And the shorter end of the stick, which is where we get that phrase from, was called the stock end. And that's where you kept a record of your personal transactions and tax payments. And it, you could trade in that. And that was where we get the term the stock market was from those sticks. And the longer end went to the king. And so there was a record at the, at the government level. And in 1834, it was decided to abandon that whole system of money and accounting and introduce a brand new, very nifty technology nobody had used really before, which was paper money. And the public said, are you out of your mind? I'm not going to give up my tally stick that has my name on it and all my record of my life on it for a piece of paper that doesn't have my name on it. So the government, uh, they basically went house to house and confiscated the tally sticks and took them to parliament and burned them. And they miscalculated how much heat would be thrown off by the burning of the tally sticks. And that's what burned parliament down in 1834. It was literally the destruction of the system of money and accounting and the creation of a new one. And I think today, it's very like 1834, we're moving from paper money to digital money. And that transition is just as dramatic. It involves a brand new system of accounting, which will be fundamentally blockchain. And it's just, there's no smoke this time. Good, now fascinating story. So let's get into that a little bit. Let's dig into our blockchain and distributive ledger technology. So let me set something at least for the audience and you can elaborate on it. People look at Bitcoin as, as if that is blockchain. Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're the marquee names that uh, use the tech for distributive ledger and blockchain. So uh, do you think Bitcoin and other marquee cryptocurrency names like you know Ethereum and et cetera, that they'll be supplanted by Silicon Valley, central banks or sovereign nations, or will they have their own separate place? So bottom line is now that the Chinese have introduced a sovereign digital currency, which is known as the DCEP, the DCEP, and it's gaining traction, other governments are going, wait a minute, we should catch up with that. Because they've realized that it's not actually money in one sense, it's kind of just a surveillance system that looks like money. 
And so it allows government to track not just all your transactions, but connect it to all the data that you're throwing off, whether it's on your mobile phone or on your search engines or whatever. It creates a kind of grid of information. And uh, so right now, the U.S. has J.P. Morgan doing a... um, a sort of trial practice run with a sovereign digital currency, which I think will be the foundation for a digital dollar. The British are looking at uh, the so-called Britcoin, um, but it's a profoundly different thing than just digitizing the money. It's an entirely new system of finance. And I'll, I'll just give you two examples of what I mean why. One is that this money shows up literally in your phone without warning. That's how the Chinese have populated it, um, got adoption going. It just, you wake up one morning, you pick up your mobile phone and there's like a thousand bucks that wasn't there before given to you by the government. So of course you're delighted to use it. But ultimately what'll happen is politicians will be able to look at all your data and say, ah, this person didn't agree with me on a policy. Therefore, we're going to tax them by deducting from their mobile phone, or this person agreed with me and voted with me, and I want to reward them, so I'll give them $1,000 on their mobile phone. It becomes not just a a, a system where you can coerce based on behavior, but one in which you can really, like create behaviors. And so this is something profoundly different than we've ever seen before. And I think it's a dramatic change and and something we need to have a conversation about as a society. So El Salvador just uh, made legal tender, Bitcoin legal tender. Uh, The U.S., as you said, is now developing its own. But China, on the other hand, kicked all the Bitcoin miners out and they're establishing their own digital system. They're, they're doing this uh, also, a, uh, I think it's the People's something, P-I-P-L, starting in November, where they're going to regulate foreign businesses having to do business their way or no way. So do you see this as lining up as a battle between, let's say, the free world economies right now, maybe the West, allowing a more benign version of what you say that is currency without all the social attachments and regulations versus CCP, which is going to, uh, regulate you, or is the whole world going there? So fundamentally, what I think is happening is sovereigns are introducing sovereign digital money, and that will create a fork in the road. Either your crypto is compliant with what the sovereign wants, or it's not. If it's compliant, they will be allowed to continue. And remember, we have like, I mean, I can't keep track. It moves every day, but it's like, something like 17,000 cryptocurrencies now exist. So Bitcoin's only one of them. So of those 17,000, I would say the ones that are compliant with what the sovereign wants, they will continue to exist. The ones that are not, they will literally run them out of town. So that's one level. The second level you're asking is, is there a difference between East and West, between China and the US? And my answer there is actually not so much because we talk a lot about this, the Chinese social credit system and that being, you know, again, a very invasive surveillance mechanism that's designed to get people to walk in a particular straight line. But we do it in the West as well. You know, Google, Facebook, they are also um, assessing your social credit and scoring you. It's just it's we privatize the function. And that's why I think we're really at a seminal moment in history where this new data space 
It's almost like you and I, we have, we're throwing off all this data, it creates a digital twin, right? There's a twin of me and you and everyone listening that already exists. And decisions are now made not on the basis of what I say or what you say, but on the basis of what our digital twins are showing. And in that space, that holographic data space, that's the wild west of our generation. That's the location where we have no rules of the road, we have no law, we have nothing to say how the data can be used, even if it's used adversely against your interests. So this is something that's super important. And I think a lot of people in the crypto space, they're just like, well, I'll just exit this whole thing. But you can't exit the data space. It, it's just there. You're still in it. You're just you're even more actively in it than you know, because your digital twin knows more than you do. Hotel California, if you can get in, but you can never leave. You know, interesting, though, when you look at the history of this, the cypherpunks or those who invented uh, Bitcoin thought this would be a way out of government regulation. And what you're saying is, in effect, this is the way to ultimate government regulation. True? Uh, I think they did think that. And I do think they were wrong about that. I'm not convinced that it leads to total government regulation because technological innovation is happening very rapidly and it always runs ahead of where government is. But... Um, I do think, look, at the end of the day, when you when you pick up your mobile phone and you transact, and let's face it, to, to be in the crypto space, you have to have a keyboard, right? You're still going to have to type in your password or your key or whatever. That keyboard is not private, right? At the end of the day, anything that you type is knowable particularly by government. So this idea that you can just escape, you know, and, and be off the grid, it, it doesn't actually work. That's why I, I know it sounds like a joke, but I always say, you know, the, the only person who won't remember your password is you, right? Your password yeah. will be known to the authorities, in my opinion, in, in this high-tech world. There's no way around that. Okay, one, one final digression on this, because I think what I got out of what you said is that the sovereigns will control Will the uh, the tech oligarchs, and again, we can you know digress a little bit into how Google, Facebook, and everybody grabs data. Will they be subservient to the sovereigns, or will they have their own separate place? So this is a really interesting debate going on right now. I still think they'll be subservient to the sovereigns, but there are a lot of people who think that they they will be the new crypto kings. They will have effectively be sovereigns themselves. Um, I don't see that, but I do think they're immensely, immensely powerful and can be more so. So uh, then a bigger question is, do the sovereigns work with them to create a kind of public-private partnership uh, of, you know, sovereign, ultimate sovereign control? And the answer is actually probably yes, which is why I come back to we need to have some kind of conversation about um, you know, what are the rights and freedoms of citizens uh, who are just trying to get on with, uh, you know, having a creative life? Because the problem is that if you, um, once you have this grid of information and you can see everybody's behavior, inevitably the algorithms are kind of like the, the guard dogs of our, of our time. And they will bark when you move in a direction that seems antisocial or inappropriate or, you know, even if it's just not in keeping with what's been decided is good for you. 
And the problem is that if you have these algorithmic guard dogs funnel everybody into the same behaviors, you're kind of starting to turn into North Korea. And uh, I'm a big believer in what Frank Zappa said, which was progress comes from deviating from the norm. And we need a society where people um, test the boundaries of, of thought and even action to create new and novel ways of doing things. And if you penalize them for that creativity, then you can't be surprised that you can end up in a society that um, isn't creative and isn't innovative and is more authoritarian. And I don't think that people want to move there. I think it's just kind of happening because technology is corralling us all in one direction. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, you're right. I think if there's a time to stand up, uh, the everyday person, now's that time. We're doing a segment uh, that predates this in this episode where we're talking about Google's algorithms and the fact that they not only stole your information advertisers, but they set up their own files about you, just as you said, and rate you on and give you scores that will allow you to be either buried on Google or go forward on it or YouTube. Uh, no one elected them. Yeah, that's true. And I think it goes really even deeper than that. Um, the data is sufficiently deep that the, the system can know when you're going to have a heart attack. Because literally, the, if you carry a mobile phone in your pocket, the phone is tracking how you walk. And how you walk is actually a very good indicator of whether a heart attack is coming. And so the data can start to indicate. Now, it may be a very good thing. And you want to know when that's happening. And, and that is actually a, a blessing. There are other people who don't want to know that a heart attack is coming, right? We're all different how we handle that kind of information. You know, Eric Schmidt, I remember once said at Google that he could save a, a huge number of lives every year if we were simply permitted at Google to send you a message saying you are about to have a heart attack, get yourself to a hospital. Um, but it's more about how decisions are made. And I think the one that I found kind of most challenging to think about is banks increasingly um, can track uh, a married couple. And they can see when a divorce is coming way before the couple themselves see it coming. And often what they'll do nowadays is um, draw down the credit limit of the lower earning partner in anticipation of a coming financial event, a negative financial event. Often that's the female. And so then let's say she realizes she's getting divorced and like most people might start ordering Ben and Jerry's ice cream on Uber Eats at midnight, right? But the problem is she uses her MasterCard and both Uber Eats and MasterCard now have deals with Google. They send that information that's auctioned off on the net. And so when she goes to apply for a job, which she now needs, it shows up because the HR departments are buying the same data and they're doing a, a, a personality check on you. And what they see is this person is not emotionally stable. They're going through a divorce and it's evident from the fact that they're eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream at midnight. Now, the, real, the, the reality is this is a terrible prejudgment about whether a person is competent for a job. But the reality is that more and more, these are the kinds of decisions that it is going, your behavior shopping, buying Ben & Jerry's is going to affect whether or not you're eligible for jobs. And that's what I mean about we don't have a legal framework that is designed to protect a human being and allow them to have Ben and Jerry's at traumatic times in their lives without sacrificing their whole future. 
That's a wonderful example. That's great. I love that. You know, I, you've also made me rethink my interview process. Usually I think I get to the core of who the person is by asking, you know, who their favorite movie character is, if they can be uh, anybody in life. But I think yours is, uh, that's one insidious way to get there. Let's drill down to the average investor. So the average investor goes out. They're, they're going to be investing at this point in stocks or bonds. Or What's the, the investment landscape going to be like 10 years from now? Is it going to be completely different? Will there be banks? I think it is going to be completely different, and I do think there will be banks. Um, look, everything depends on where you start, right? Where you're going to get to does is influenced by where you start. I start with the assumption that uh, we live in a world that has abundance and ubiquity is, is a real thing. We do not have scarcity and innovation will allow us to create literally things out of nothing. Um, I don't know if you remember Buckminster Fuller, uh, the engineer who um, built the geodesic dome and was a great philosopher in that field. And he was writing it about the mid 1980s about a concept he called ephemeralization, which means you can always do ever more with ever less. And technology facilitates that. And I, I think that's absolutely true. It's hard for people to get their heads around it and really believe this because we've been so trained that there's scarcity and limited and we have to compete to see who's going to get what. But I think the reality is that virtually every problem can actually be solved. The question is whether we apply our you know, intellects well enough to it. So I don't think, I don't see the sort of dark downside of, of scarcity. I see the unlimited upside of abundance. Within the financial system, I see it even more because I do think that we're moving into this new system and it's not crypto exclusively, it's also this blockchain technology. And blockchain will probably, will look back in history and say it was the Model T of this time. Like it's not gonna be the final version. It's not, it's clunky, it's slow, it's not very elegant. And we will get much faster versions of blockchain. But what's important is you are gonna know through smart contracts, what your situation is. And I think it's, and now I'll say something that sounds really dramatic. I think it is dramatic. I think that, is the, it's the introduction of a new level of accounting. We will have gone from single entry accounting, double entry accounting, triple entry accounting. This is quadruple. This is where the data is confirmed. No one can contest it. It is proven in the blockchain what happened when and where. And that is the beginning of the end of the need for a corporation. And I do think that the East India Company, which was created 400 years ago, is now reaching its natural limit. And we're going to see human beings coming together to create value, um, often in totally diverse parts of the world, because you can now work in global teams because of the Zoom revolution. And that combined with smart contracts means you may not need to have a company to do that. And that means no stock market, because if there are no companies, then there's no stocks. And that also means potentially no need for lawyers, like the end of the law firm, because your smart contracts do all the work. There's, there's nothing to contest. And so this is a really radical moment in history where we are, like I said, transitioning from an old system of money and accounting to a radically different one. And I think probably a much better one. 
And like I said, in 1834, the last time this happened, that set the stage for the biggest period of growth in modern history, the Industrial Revolution. And I'd say it's going to be like that this time, except more. Amazing. You know, I almost had that Google heart attack you said when you're saying that the lawyers aren't going to be needed for contracts. But right here, I actually I, let me do a I have a bunch of follow-ups, but that one uh, on that in particular, because I was talking to one of the associates. I was telling him you said that, and uh, why? Let's say you have the perfect accounting system. You don't need anybody to validate what's going on as far as the accounting goes. But what happens if there's a dispute? I mean, somebody argues that you're not adhering to your side of the coin. Your performance isn't what you promised. My performance isn't what's promised. Why don't you need lawyers to enforce contracts then? Well, again, if what you promised will be on the blockchain. So you better see what you promised was these words and what you got is on the blockchain. This is what we got. So it, there's no dispute. It, it's just be a fact. What is the actual fact? I mean, but what if I'm defrauded? What, what if I say I'm defrauded? Somebody caused me to. I didn't even know what be, I was doing. You won't even need, if, if you are committing, a, if you're, let's put it this way, if someone else is committing a fraud, the blockchain yeah. is going to show you exactly, exactly when it started, how it was done. I mean, there, again, you won't have to investigate. It's going to be totally obvious because blockchain literally captures all the data. And that's what I mean by, by uh, quadruple entry accounting. This is adding a whole new layer of certainty. So nobody can go back and fudge an invoice. It's not possible in a blockchain world. Nobody can go back and say, oh, that's so funny. We lost the piece of paper. No, there is no losing a piece of paper anymore. So, uh, you know, will we have disputes? I'm sure we will. But will it be over the facts? There won't be any capacity to contest them because they'll be perfectly obvious right in front of you. And confirmed by a multitude of other players on the blockchain. Well said. Right, let me drill back up again to what you said. I, I agree with you. I remember when you were talking about scarcity and, and you say you don't uh, buy into that. I, I remember peak oil and way before that, there was not going to be enough food for all the people in the world. All those things turned out to be fallacies. But where I want to go, my question to you is, so is the result going to be Star Trek, where we go on to the next generation, or is it going to be Big Brother regulating us into misery and uh, paranoia? So one thing in my leadership books that I, I, I try to argue is that it's really important to try to move away from prediction and instead get focused on preparedness. And prediction often shows up in this kind of binary either or, like, like what you've just laid out. And my view is actually... There's nothing to stop both those scenarios occurring simultaneously. We can move into kind of Star Trek the future and have greater Big Brother type regulatory oversight at the same time. Um, I think, in fact, that's the most likely outcome is that you get multiple narratives occurring simultaneously. And in fact, the more we decentralize the economy, the more likely it is that you have some people who are experiencing one element and some experiencing another. Like even right now, I'm often asked, you know, what's the situation with the economy now? Are we going into like recession, depression? Is it going to be terrible for a long period? Or, or are we at the beginning of some incredible growth period? And the answer is, it's both at the same time. A bit like in the 1920s, when you had 
one group in the population who'd done very well and they were leading a great Gatsby life, drinking champagne. And at the same time, this was the time when a huge number of Americans after the crash lost their jobs and ended up becoming the Okies, right? In, in the famous novel, The Greats of Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath and The Great Gatsby are basically about the same period. Both are true simultaneously. So we got to get a lot more comfortable with this idea that you can have multiple narratives occurring simultaneously. Well said. All right. So investors, should they be loading up on digital assets like Bitcoin or should they be focusing on the companies developing the tech? Uh, so again, maybe it's not binary. Maybe you need to be doing both. And it's not so much to my mind about loading up on Bitcoin. I, I think, look, uh, I don't know if it's true in the States. I'm American, but I've been living in England for a long time. In England, when you go to vacuum, you can off, you'll often hear people say, I'm going to Hoover the floor because Hoover was like a brand name that was the most prominent. Bitcoin is just a brand name. It's, a, it's one company. It's one type of crypto, but it's not. There are like 17,000 other ones. Will it be the only one that makes it? I don't think it will. I think there'll be several. Is it going to be the best because it was the first mover? Not necessarily. And I know this is almost like irreligious. Like I'm probably going to get like hate mail because people are like, no, it's Bitcoin, nothing else. But I'm like, come on, guys. Right? It's technological innovation. So yes, Bitcoin is solid. It's 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 got uh, history and, and some longevity to it, but doesn't mean that it's the only one. And but it, and it also doesn't mean that buying Bitcoin is the answer. What's important is to get much more comfortable with digital assets. And that's why I think people really need to understand what are these digital assets? Um, even for example, NFTs, right? The world is split into people who think the NFTs are, are literally a JPEG of an ape and anyone who buys them is literally lost their marbles because it's just like a picture, who cares? And others who understand that when you buy one of those things, you are buying a global network of very wealthy people who are literally going to help you uh, uh, market and sell product. And when you sell products through that network, what would have taken you a, a department store with a footfall and months of marketing, and you will sell merchandise in minutes. You will be totally sold out at record prices in minutes just because of this incredible network effect. And I don't think people have understood that network effect. So my advice to the audience is start looking at digital assets. Like I just bought my first piece of digital art. It doesn't have any, it's not a crypto. It doesn't, it's not an NFT. It's just pretty, right? I just bought it because I liked it. And it's, it's really cool. I bought it on Sedition Art, which is a really cool platform for digital art. And I bought it because I wanted to begin my personal journey into the digital space. And I wanted to own something that was, that was an artist, partly because I think artists are the radar of society. It's no, it's no surprise to me at all that NFTs begin as artworks. But what's going what's to come is that your mortgage document is going to be an NFT. The deed to your home is going to be an NFT. That basically these are digital records that, are, that have certificates that prove that belongs to you and only you and cannot be replicated by anyone else. On our last episode we did, there was a lady named Krista Kim 
She sold a digital house called Mars House for $500,000. Can't live in it, can't visit it, except virtually. But, again, someone found enough value in that. And then you're saying the other side of the coin, meaning I can see it from a lawyer's point of view. You know, I have a token that says this is my deed. No one can transfer it. I get that. Why are they the same? I, I, I understand how someone might appreciate the Mars house, but is the value really there? Well, what you're talking about is the metaverse. And the metaverse, actually, in what, on one level, it doesn't exist yet. And on another level, it's been around for a long time. And what it is, is the concept of being in a purely virtual world where you can navigate as a human, but it's nothing is, is physically real, but the ownership of assets is very real. And I think that there are going to be addresses and locations. Um, for example, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a partner of something called the Monaco Foundry, which is an um, accelerator for startups. And one of the companies that we're backing is an interesting company called D-World. And they've created a virtual replica of Monaco, which is where they're based. So if I want to go shopping in Monaco, or if I want to duck in to talk to the concierge in the hotel because I'm coming to Monaco, I literally can just go online and it's not like I send them an email. It's literally, I can be talking to the concierge at the hotel in Monaco about, I'm going to be there on Tuesday and can you help me with this, that? And by the way, is there a good shop nearby? They say, yeah, yeah, yeah. the shop is three doors down and they're having a huge sale. You literally go three doors down in the metaverse and you are in that shop and you are able to transact. So this is definitely coming and people have to understand that they, they either will own territory in that space or they you know, won't. And if they don't, they won't be able to operate in. And that includes, by the way, creating your avatar that, that is gonna navigate in that world and creating whatever digital assets. So again, with NFTs, think of it this way. So let's say you, you have a huge success and you go buy, I don't know, a Ferrari. And so, you know, people think buying a Ferrari and driving around is cool, right? That's like, that's why they buy them. Well, what if you also get a Ferrari NFT? And if you're savvy, you go, excellent. I'm gonna take my, my Ferrari into the metaverse and have it there and show it off just like I do in the real world, except that in the real world, I can only have the people who happen to be on the street I'm driving on see it. In the metaverse, the entire world can see it. Like it's a much bigger audience. Or you say, well, I like the physical one. I really don't care about the, the metaverse one and I'll sell it. You could find, you can sell that NFT for more than the Ferrari. So now you just got a Ferrari for free. Like literally, this is a whole new world of value creation. And that's why I say you may not need a stock market to create investable structures. We may be coming into something new where people are trading in these digital assets. And I don't think the government will be able to stop that. The best they can do is regulate it. We can only hope. Thanks for putting the, uh, the flesh on the skeleton. I appreciate that. Very, very, uh, very well said. I was going to ask you, real estate transactions, what do you think that, uh, in the new world, uh, all handled by uh, digital uh, NFTs, as we discussed? Uh, digital processes. Um, there's a company I was just talking to some people here in Madeira about, which was um, basically 
taking your digital twin and creating a digital uh, process that means you can be confirmed for your mortgage in 10 minutes. So no more waiting, 28 days, followed by the lawyers exchanging the contract. Like literally, I mean, what, what is it that can't be known about you in 10 minutes? Answer, nothing. Everything can be known about you in the data space. So that means your mortgage gets done in that space. The certificate is issued. It is in a is in a format that's blockchain based, so it can't be replicated. It's yours and only yours, it's tied to your identity. You know, nobody can commit a fraud to take it from you because it's it's clear who that belongs to. So that's that's all imminent, definitely. Good. All right, I'm going to start heading for the uh, the end, but I want to just uh, ask you in your opinion two things. First, is the stock market expansion sustainable uh, or are we heading for uh, trouble in your opinion? So I do think, and I have argued uh, since the financial crisis that we're gonna see stock market valuations rise really dramatically and far beyond what anyone expects. And that's a combination of things. It's partly that we're in an extraordinary period of innovation and value creation that's genuine. Um, It's partly because the more money governments throw into the system, the by definition, the more money is chasing these, these assets we call stocks. And so they go up. You know, I remember, and now I'm going to really date myself, but I remember uh, somebody, I was an economist in Washington, and he wrote a book called Dow 10,000. I was like, oh, that'll never happen. It'll never get to 10,000, right? And then you're like, and again, you keep throwing money at this thing. So I'm like, I don't know where we're going, but it's Dow a lot higher than it ever was in the past because there's so much money in the system. It's got to go somewhere. And finally, I'll say the whole point of record low interest rates and throwing money at the system is to make it incredibly painful for anybody to just sit on their money in the bank. It is designed to cause inflation and inflation is kicking in and no one can deny this any longer. It's, it's obvious that it's occurring. And that is an acid that erodes the value of your savings. It forces you to get it out of the bank and put it into anything, put it into property, put it into the stock market, put it into anything, put it in a startup. And that is what people are doing. And that is what causes the economy to grow again. The problem is once you unleash the inflation genie from the bottle, it's impossible to control where it goes. And so let, let me, I'm going to yeah. say something. I'm going to regret saying this, but I want your take on it because I had a guest on about uh, a month ago, very intelligent guy. I don't know if I should say his name or not, but anyways, what he was saying, which it, it's, it seems counterintuitive to what you just said. And it seems like the battle is going on. Now he's saying that what is going on is you have this massive QE but that all the money that is being generated by these bond purchases and, 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 uh, and the Fed loaning it back to these banks is in a money prison, he calls it. And he's saying, so you have these three or four large banks. They can only sell to themselves. The money gets circulated between them. They loan it back and forth because they have to have something to balance the assets, which, or excuse me, the liabilities, which are the savings accounts that you just described that pay nothing in their bank. So he's saying, yeah, there's a ton of money generated by QE, but it's not going anywhere. 
And, and the average person who wants to invest like me and you, you're throwing money in the stock market, but he's saying the big queuing money is in prison. Is that a valid concept? You know, I get what he's saying, uh, and maybe a portion of it is locked in that way, but it's leaking. And a lot of it is being used to lever up and get into risk. Because remember, you know, if I'm a trader and you give me free money at really cheap interest rates, the first thing I want to do is bet that on something really, really risky because yeah. it's costless to me, right? So I'm looking for the riskiest thing I can find. Like, why not? Why wouldn't you? And that is what the market is doing. It is looking for really risky bets because... Why, what's the downside if it's come to you for free and, it, it, and it's got almost no interest attached to it? So I understand what he's saying. And it's true because banks are not lending in the way they used to in the old days. But frankly, they don't even have the lending officers. So they don't even know how to make a loan, let alone make a loan. So it's not, it's not occurring the way it used to. The circulation of money is not occurring the way it used to. But other parts of the financial system are getting financed and funded and they are finding ways of lending. So these days, you know, if I want to borrow a hundred million, you go to almost any hedge fund and they'll be thrilled to lend you a hundred million at some, you know, interest rate of like six, 7%. And considering where interest rates are, that's like a fantastic deal for the hedge fund. And if you have a really good idea, that's actually a pretty good deal for you too. So you just didn't get it from an old-fashioned bank. You got it from a hedge fund. And family offices, you know, private families, they're lending like mad. Basically, you can borrow. It's just you're not borrowing from the banks. Promise. Last question, then I'm going to ask you where people can get a hold of you. Is, but isn't the counter to that argument 2009 when they started? Remember, they had the Great Recession, and, it, and it, all deflation took hold because you couldn't keep the, the asset bubble inflated when it had a hole in it for forever and ever. Is, is deflation a concern to all these hedge funds that are loaning and thrilled to get 6 and 7% now? Is that a problem for them? Yeah. So a lot of the deflationary forces have subsided. So China is no longer producing ever cheaper goods because the Chinese public, after the financial crisis, woke up and realized, hey, maybe I'm not going to be rich before I get old. See, when you believe you're going to be rich before you get old, you're like, I'm working, working. I don't care. You can pay me later because it's going to all pay off later. Now, then they went, there is no payoff later. So now they're like, you got to pay me now. So wages in China have been rising. So it's no longer deflationary. Now it's inflationary. China is exporting inflation. And Walmart tells you that. They're like, the price of goods from China is going up. They are not willing to work for free anymore. Meanwhile, in the West, we still do have the deflationary force of technological innovation. But I'm not convinced it's occurring at the same um speed and magnitude, uh, look at the cost of buying, you know, back to buying your iPhone. I remember when it used to be, you know, if you were a big user with your, your um, telecoms company, they'd pretty much give you the phone for free. Right. These days, everybody is paying the full freight. You know, the thing costs like 700 bucks or a thousand bucks and you're paying it. That means it's not free anymore. That's not deflationary anymore. And I do think that um, the way central banks record inflation is heavily maneuvered to hide it because it's in their interest to hide it. Um, that's a whole conversation by itself. And I argued that in my book, Signals. 
but it doesn't mean it isn't happening. And I think everybody feels like, wait a minute, my rent is going up. The cost of groceries is going up. Like my school fees are going like name something that isn't going up. The deflationary forces have subsided and the inflationary forces are taken over. I'm so interested in this subject. I think that the, the rate of change is so quick at this point. People don't see what's coming. It's like a train coming through the tunnel. Have you ever looked at, um, if you Google the knowledge doubling curve, it's super interesting. So again, that's Buckminster Fuller. And he wrote this book in 85, 86, and he talked about how in the year 1900, the volume of information that a human had to process was doubling every 100 years. In 1945, it's every 25 years. In 1985, it's every year. And the IBM estimate for last year was that it's doubling every 12 hours. Do we have the spiritual and, and uh, the emotional integrity to be able to weather it is the question. I think the knowledge is certainly get there, but uh, you see... It's uh, very volatile. It, this is it. And uh, that's why everyone feels like, oh, my God, I can't keep up. I can't keep up. I, it's true. Um, I have some theories about how humanity is dealing with it. And one of the ways is that people stop reading and instead they start identifying tribes. So they say, I don't have time to read or, or watch everything, let's say, on CNN, but I I totally trust CNN or I totally don't trust CNN. So if it came from CNN, I already know, is it I believe it or I don't believe it. And this is making us more tribal. And it's also reviving the power of symbols. And people, you know, people think, oh, literacy is much more advanced than using symbols. But if you think about it, every corporate logo is a symbol. And seeing the Apple logo tells you more about what you're dealing with than anything written. And I think symbols are becoming much more powerful and important in society, um, but we don't think of it that way. But it's a way of just compressing. Think about how much do you use emoticons when you're texting friends to convey what you're saying? You can send way more information with an emoticon than you can writing it in words. So we're moving into a society where we're almost reverting to the ancient tradition of conversing in symbols. Because there's no, I'm, I'm with you on that totally. I, my, and again, this is on a personal note, but I, I realized I've got to fight to be able to maintain my own thoughts and integrity. You've got to take walks. I sit there. I, I believe there's a God. I want to talk to him. But I'm just saying, if you don't, you get caught up and you become. You're the emoji man or the emoji woman. And, and uh, pretty soon, who are you? Your Instagram and your, and your persona. But the real you that gives you an ability to navigate this, got to fight for that. Totally agree. 100%. You're a charming lady, and, and uh, your ideas are fantastic. I appreciate that. If my listeners want to contact you or follow you, uh, how would they do that? Yeah, uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm on Twitter under Dr. Pippa M, because nobody can spell my last name. And, uh, and I'm pretty active on Twitter, and I love you know answering questions. And I know I've said some pretty dramatic things here, so happy to interact with people on those two platforms. Yeah, you did a great job. I think you're going to spur a lot of conversation. And again, I appreciate you being a guest on Truth Serum. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, 
Go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.